Wow. Good morning, everybody. My name's Pauline. I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen. And, you know, I think it was Eric last night talked about what a pretty picture this is to look out at all of you. And, my gosh, he was right. It really is a pretty picture to see all of you. So um, I'm grateful to be here. Thanks, Tim, for your wonderful kickoff talk last night. That filled my spirit. And I'm sure by the time I hear the rest of the speakers today and tomorrow that uh, my recovery well will be filled to the brim. And gosh, I hope yours is too. And a big thanks to Tom for inviting me to speak. It's always a pleasure uh, to be involved in my own recovery. However, when Tom asked me to talk, I did get a bit of a resentment. So I need to tell you why so that you know, you know what goes on in my life. So... Um, My other half's sobriety date is October 25th, 1992. And mine is, I claim November the 12th, but it's sometime early November of 1992. And for these, so he's got about two weeks more time in the rooms as me. And for these two weeks, my life is miserable. Because he'll say things, if I do the least little thing, you know, like maybe cuss at something, you know, piddly, he'll say... You know, if, if you had 26 years of time in the program, then that wouldn't have bothered you. So these two weeks are really miserable, so uh, I'm glad, extra glad to be here today because hopefully that'll enable me to, to be on my A-game. So uh, some of you out there may be new to hearing an Al-Anon story because there's lots of new people here I recognized last night. And my role is pretty much like that of someone who gives an AA talk. I'm going to share what it was like, how I got into the program, and what my life is like today as a result of that. Um, I will tell you that uh, I'm the fourth of five children. I did not grow up in an alcoholic family. However, I will tell you that from a little kid on, I was large and in charge. I was the one who determined how we were going to play Barbie dolls. I was the one who directed all the plays. I was the one who figured out whether we were going to play hide-and-seek that night or Red Rover or Beanbag or Kick the Can or whatever. I was always in charge. Even in grade school, because I was the tallest girl in the class, I always got to play Joseph in the Nativity Story. (laughs) And so every year I'd think... Jeez Louise, do we not know what's going on here? Get the darn hotel room before you even think of traveling. But no, I had to play the role of Joseph and drag Mary behind me, knowing full well that this was not very organized and was not in the way I like to think of it as in Pauline's perfect plan. And Pauline always has a perfect plan. It's always right here. It's always right here. Actually, I had a perfect plan from about 11 o'clock last night till 1 o'clock this morning as to what I was going to say today. I don't remember any of that, but it was Pauline's perfect plan for a couple of hours last night. So um, didn't grow up in any alcoholism, was large and in charge, and a bit of a, I guess we could say a control freak, let's be honest. And uh, in uh, 1978 my dad had a heart attack. And we all rallied around at the hospital, and then afterwards when my dad settled down and everything was okay, my mom sent all of the kids away, and a girlfriend said, let's go to the bar and have a glass of wine, and you can settle down and tell me, you know, what's going on with your dad. So we walked into this bar, and standing behind the bar was this blonde guy Oxford shirt sleeves rolled up, blue jean vest and blue jeans. He looked up at me, because I'm taller than him. (laughs) Which means I really am his higher power. And he looked up at me and he said, Don't I know you from somewhere? And now I started laughing, because that's the oldest line in the books. But he really did know me from somewhere. You see, my sister lived on the top floor of a duplex with her roommate, and Mike lived on the first floor of a duplex with his roommate, and Michael remembered me from when I was 16. (sighs) I was in love. (laughs) 
So I hung around that bar for a little bit, and then eventually he asked me out for a date. And our first date was just a little bit down the river, across the river at Clifty Falls State Park. Me, him, and a pack of 12, 12 pack of Paps Blue Ribbon beer. And I counted every beer that he drank, even on our first date. And on that first date, as we drove home, he told me we were going to get married. (sighs) Until I got home. When I got home from that first date, I noticed, I don't know about growing up for you, but my parents had pretty strict rules about, you know, what doors are locked and what lights are left on when any of us kids were out and about. And I noticed that things were off. And I walked in the house, and there was a glow emanating from the kitchen. And I thought, oh my gosh, what's the matter? So I go into the kitchen, and my mom and dad have a votive candle lit, and they're holding hands, and there's a rosary between them. And I said, oh my gosh, what's the matter? And my mom looked up, and she said, did you know he was divorced before you went out on a date with him? I, of course, lied and said no. So my mom was not too pleased with him from the get-go. Wrong religion, divorced, yada, yada. She had a long list. We went on and dated anyway, and in 1978, um, yeah, 1978, we went away for a weekend, and he popped the question, and I said yes, and we came home and face the wrath of my mother. So when we told mom that we were engaged to be married, my mother said, oh no, you're not. So we were like, well, what do we have to do to make this work? And mom says, you're going to need to go out to your maternal grandmother and get her permission to get married. So off Mike and I trot out to maternal grandmother's house, and we tell her why we're here, And she asks us a couple of questions, and finally she looks at Mike and she says, Do you love her? And he said, Yes. Good answer, babe. And she asked me, she said, Pauline, do you love him? And I said, Yes, I do. And she said, Well, Mike, get that bottle of bourbon out from underneath the kitchen sink. We'll have a little highball, and there's going to be a wedding. And I said, Whoa, 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 whoa. Please call 431-2954. And tell the woman that answers that phone, my mom, that there's going to be a wedding. So grandma called mom, everything was set, and we got married in September of 1980. So we just celebrated 38 years. Thank goodness. One day at a time. So, uh, you know, when we got married, it was a beautiful fall day. And you know, at the end of the ceremony, the church bells rang. And in retrospect, what I, what I think happened when those church bells rang was a little voice that said, ladies and gentlemen, the games are about to begin. <laughs> you know, I recognized when we were dating that he, he just didn't behave right. He drank too much. He smoked too much. He drank caffeinated coffee. He didn't hang with the right people. He had lots of minuses in my book, and what I needed to do was make him fit into Pauline's perfect plan. So I thought, you know, what I needed to do was find the right words to maneuver and guide and cajole him into the path that I thought he he needed to walk. And so we got married, and we moved to his folks' farm. Now, I grew up in an urban area, so moving to a farm was the very typical, for those of you who remember the TV show Green Acres, that's me. The only thing I really enjoyed, no, I enjoyed a lot of things out at the farm, but I do remember the day the father-in-law said, we're going to clamp cattle today. Do you want to do that? And I said, what's that? And he said, we're going to, in essence, castrate them. And I said, I am all about that. Bring on the whole herd. So I learned how to... So gentlemen, keep your legs crossed at all times. So uh, we moved to the farm, and I noticed 
that he was going out and drinking a lot. He was driving, oh, about a half hour away to drink. And you know, that didn't fit into my plan. According to my plan, he should get done with work, come home, we have dinner, we do maybe a little light gardening, walk over and see the in-laws, take a walk on the backside of the farm, enjoy the sunset, maybe castrate more cattle. I don't know. But it did not involve his going out drinking. And so a cycle of events started to happen that continued for the next 14 years. So we left that home out at the farm and we moved to our little suburban paradise in Florence. I'm sure those of you who've gone up 75, you've gone right through Florence and that's where we lived. And uh, he would go out to the bar a fair amount because he's a bar drinker. So three to four nights a week, he went to the bar. And on a typical evening, here's what would happen. I'd get off work and go home and fix that dinner, be all ready. Actually, my mom made aprons by the bucketful, so I was also in the cutest little apron all the time. And um, I'd have dinner ready, and then the phone would ring. And it'd be the other half. And he'd say, honey, I'm going to go to a business meeting. I learned pretty darn quick that that was code, secret code, for I'm going to go out and drink. So he'd say he was going to go to a business meeting, and I'd say, well, okay, what time are you going to be home? And some of you know the answers. He'd say 6.30, maybe 7. So he'd get off the phone. I'd put dinner on the warmer, and then when 6.30 or 7 came and he wasn't home, I called the bar. Remember. Pauline's perfect plan, large and in charge. So I'd call the bar, and the bartender would answer the phone, and I'd say, hi, is Mike there? And that bartender would muffle that phone, and I'd hear him call out to Mike, hey, Mike, are you here? And I'd hear Mike say, tell her no. And then the bartender would come back on and say, he's not here, click. So while the other half was out tying one on, I began to tie one on as well without even seeing him take a drop of alcohol. And what I tied on was a good obsession. Oh, yeah, I like my obsessions. Actually, I tend to OD on obsessions. (laughs) So he'd go out and drink, and as someone would go down the street, I'd pop over to the window and look out to see if it was him. And when it wasn't him... Another layer of obsession would come over me. Another layer of anger would begin to envelop me. More rage. And that cycle would go on and on and on. Until about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning when he would cross the threshold. And then I, I really have to tell you that an Oscar award-winning performance was about to begin. Because by now, I am mad as the dickens, just mad as all get out. I'd lay down in that bed, fold my hands, and look like the Virgin Mary, I know. (laughs) He'd come in and lay down in bed, and then the Wicked Witch of the West next to him would levitate, and I'd get in his face. Where were you? He'd tell me where he was, and of course what I did was I called him liar with lots of colorful language about it. Add your own words, I'm sure you know some. And then I'd say, how much did you have to drink? And he'd name a number, and I'd say, liar. And then I'd say, were there women? Did you talk to any women at the bar tonight? He'd say no, and I'd say, liar. And so we had this big, long argument started by me. And usually there'd be tears and lots of stomping on my part. He pretty much just laid there and took it. And usually in high drama, I'd grab my pillow and I'd march to the bedroom door and I'd turn around and I'd say, I don't have to take this crap from you anymore. I'm going to sleep downstairs. And I'd stomp down the steps. Now in my perfect plan, what he was supposed to do was come to the door look down the steps at me and say, Pauline, love of my life, desire of my existence. The evil alcohol will never cross my lips again. Please come back to the bedroom. 
That never happened. (laughs) So, another layer of rage and anger on me. I'd stomp back up the steps, and by now, he's doing what anybody would do who's had too much to drink. He is snorting and farting at the same time. (laughs) I'd get right over him, ding, ding, ding. Round two at our house is about to begin, and once again, I started the argument. And words came out of my mouth that I don't even need to repeat here. What I will tell you is they were filled with venom. They were designed to cut and slice. And I enjoyed every darn minute of it because that's just the type of person I was. So the next day, there'd be the silent treatment by me, of course. I can do about a five-day silent treatment with him. And in the meantime, he was still doing what he, he does because he enjoys drinking. So um, our lives got progressively more and more miserable. We, beca- we became further and further apart. However, he was not the only one that got to feel the kind of love that I have for him and others. I'm the type of person without a program of recovery that follows you around if you drop litter on the ground, and I will pick up the litter and give it to you and show you where the trash receptacle is. You know at the grocery store those little signs that they have hanging up that says 12 items? Now that says approximately. I only know because I'm an obsessive type. It says approximately 12 items or less. I'm the type of person who would come up behind you at the grocery store and show you how to count the number of items in your cart and then direct you to the appropriate grocery line where you can check out and I would let the cashier know that I brought you over as well because after all, St. Pauline did another good turn. And don't even think about texting while you're driving because I'm the one who drives up beside you winds the window down on the driver's side and asks you to put your phone down and just drive your darn car. That's just the type of person I am. And I felt no remorse about any of it, any of it. I used to write tickets for people and for their parking. I, I, got, it, I, I realized it was so inefficient to handwrite tickets that I found a tear-off tab so I could just check what your errors were and then tear it off and leave it on your car and leave the scene of the crime. That's the type of person I am. I would follow people home in their car and then rip them a new one when they got to their driveway. It made no difference to me at all. I didn't even think that you might do something inappropriate. You just needed to learn how to drive correctly And I am the person who will tell you how to do that. So, life goes on. I'm a hot mess on the inside. But what I will tell you if you ask me how I am, you know what I tell everybody. I'm fine. I'm fine, thank you. But inside, whoo, let me tell you, I was filled with a lot of anxiety and fear. Because here's what I recognized. Something was wrong but I didn't know what it was. I knew I was unhappy, but I thought it was him. I thought he, if only he would do X, Y, and Z, then Pauline would get what she wanted. So I was filled with a lot of fear and shame. Other half started a business in that time period. Recession came along. Other half lost that business. Money was extremely tight. People, he had lots of initials showing up at the door, the FBI initials, the IRS initials, the local PD initials. So I was filled with shame and guilt. I I didn't want to answer the door. I didn't want to answer the phone. I felt completely lost with nowhere to turn. I did not know what to do. And I told no one what was going on in my world because I felt like I was a mistake If only I was prettier, if only I kept the house nicer, if only I was better at sex, if only I gave him more money or bought him this toy or bought him that, 
there was always something that I needed to do to try to fix him so that he could fix me. Really, really sick thinking. But I didn't know that then. I didn't know that. What I knew was that I was obsessed. Well, I didn't even know that I was obsessed. What I did was obsess about everything he did and try to control him and control all of you. I hated going to parties because if he got tipsy and you were tipsy, then there might be words. And then we might have to leave that party in shame. And so I had to control all the conversations at a party. I'm telling you, it's a lot of work to be a control freak like me. It really is. It takes a lot out of me mentally and emotionally. So life goes on and um, things are pretty miserable. And in each of those arguments, I'm getting up in his face, hands and fingers flying, and I'm almost always saying, you know, I do not have to put up with this crap from you. I do not. But that message never made it into my heart. It was just words. I thought threatening, but they were just words. So we lost that house, and we moved to where we are in Newport, Kentucky. I didn't want to live in Newport, Kentucky. I was ashamed of living in Newport, Kentucky. It had a bad rap. Mobsters, prostitution, lots of stuff going on. A lot of the famous mobsters stopped in Newport on their way to Las Vegas. And uh, my mother was not thrilled that we were living in uh, Newport either. That was, became very well known. And um, I, not, neither he nor I knew that when we moved to Newport in 1992 that he was a couple of months away from getting sober and I was a couple of months away from finding a program of recovery. When we moved to Newport, he was still driving out to the bar to get drunk a few nights a week, even though he wasn't working. And at that time, what I decided was that my solution was for him to die. So I bought the dress that I would wear to the funeral. And I planned how I would spend the insurance money. I knew exactly where the policy was. And I'd looked up how to cash it in. And what I prayed, not that I prayed much, because I didn't. More about that a little bit later. But we had a circle freeway. We have a circle freeway up there. And what I would hope, what I hoped, was that he would go over that circle freeway and fly over the railing into the Licking River. I didn't want him to hurt anybody else, but I wanted him gone. That's what the family disease of alcoholism does to me. It brings me to a place where I think that the person that I purportedly love should die to fix me. I had already planned how I would respond at the funeral home when you came by and shook my hand, how the tears would fall gently across my cheek, and I would shake your hand and thank you, and the whole time thinking, tomorrow I'm leaving on vacation, because that's just what alcoholism had done to me. But um, for all those years that he was, had been drinking, um, for many of them, I had started going to an employee assistance person at work. About once a year, I'd go in and verbally vomit on her. And by that, I mean I would give her the long laundry list of all the things he did wrong. And I'll never forget, almost every year, she'd reach across and she'd grab my arm and she'd stroke it ever so lovingly. And she'd say, Pauline, there's a place that you can go to get some help. It's called Al-Anon. And she'd describe a little bit about what Al-Anon does. And what I would do is I'd grab her other arm and I'd stroke it very nicely back and I'd look at her and I'd say, you're not listening to me. (laughs) That's just the type of person I am. So... um, One night, um, I believe a higher power intervened in my life. Now, I didn't have a higher power. Remember, I'm a person who likes to plan things, and I like to maneuver and figure it out and determine just the right words to say to influence you. And so my higher power was Dr. Marlena Evans from Days of Our Lives. (laughs) Because she looked good, 
She knew the right words to say. She knew how to backdoor and figure things out. And I thought she was a darn rootin' tootin' good looking role model. So I didn't have a higher power. And when I did call out for help, it was the let's make a deal. If you bring him home by one o'clock, then I promise I won't be as mean as I was last week when this happened. And that's the kind of let's make a deal, wheeling and dealing, that I did with a higher power. So in 1992, he's gone out to do his usual thing, and I'm home, and I go to bed at 11 o'clock. Remember, my perfect plan, 11 o'clock. So I'm in bed, and for the very first time in my life, the things that I had been saying to him came back and hit me. Because I, I heard the sentence, Pauline, you do not have to put up with this anymore. And that message made it from my head to my heart. And when he came home that night, there was no high drama, there was no award winning performance, there was sleep. He laid down and he went to sleep. And a couple of days later, because I read in Good Housekeeping or Cosmo that you're supposed to wait for and have good timing if you're going to have a serious discussion, I sat him down and I said, Sweetheart, I love you. Something is not right. I don't know what it is, but something has to change. And I let it go. And about two weeks later, he came home from wherever he was, or I, maybe I came home from work, and he asked me for the employee assistance number. Of course, always being prepared, I whipped it out. <laughs> he called employee assistance, and off he goes to get an alcohol assessment. So he goes and he gets his test, and you know how when you go to the doctor, they give you the little thing with your diagnosis on it? He comes home with his little diagnosis, and holds it up to me, much like a kindergartner holds up their art that they made in their preschool class. And he proudly announces that they have deemed him an alcoholic. And here's what I thought. Buddy, I've been telling you you're a flippin' alcoholic for the past 14 years, and you go off to some doctor and they tell you you're an alcoholic? What is wrong with that? And so I copped a big old attitude about the whole thing. So off he goes to treatment. And he comes home from his first week of treatment and he says, Pauline, alcoholism is a family disease. <laughs> and they have a family program. And you need to go. Well, the bobble-headed doll comes out in me, and I'm like, this is your problem. You got us into this mess. You go off to your program, your little alcohol assessment, and I'll stay home. Thank you very much. And then I thought, oh, darn. When I get on Oprah, and Oprah says, Pauline, did you do everything that you possibly could to maintain the marriage, I'd pause. I'd grab the tissue, wipe away the single tear that would drop, and say, yes, I did everything. So the only reason I went to that family program was for show. That was my motivation. I didn't want you to think that I was not being supportive, even though, behind closed doors, I was anything but. So I walked into that very first meeting at the hospital group, and I liked no one. <laughs> of course, I sat there with my arms crossed, waiting for something to happen. And what the good news is, is something did. Because I think my higher power, unbeknownst to me, intervened again. 
Because in that meeting that night, it didn't make a difference to me by the end of the meeting whether your alcoholic was your wife, your husband, your partner, your child, your grandparent, your brother, or your sister. What I heard was that layer underneath the similarities of the anger, the anxiety, the shame that I felt. And in that spot, when we drove home, I cried uncontrollably. And Mike, I remember, he put his hand on me and he said, Sweetheart, why are you crying? And I said, Honey, I didn't realize until tonight how crazy I had become. Because through their sharing, I saw me. And I reached my bottom, my own personal spot of agony, where I had just a centimeter's worth of willingness to go back and try it again. So I went to that hospital group, and they said in order for me to stay, I needed to go to something called Al-Anon. Bobble-headed doll came back out. (laughs) Of course, I thought I had a very busy social life when I didn't, because if you're an obsessive person like me, I always stayed home because I wanted to be able to make sure that I had the right information on what he was doing and where he was going and who he was with. So I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and I walked in, and two things happened to me. So in the one end of the room, there were three women laughing. I remember thinking, what in the heck are you doing laughing about this disease? There is nothing funny about this at all. And then the other side of me said, boy, I sure do wish I could laugh like that again. I wonder what they're doing. So I stayed in that meeting and started on my journey to recovery. He was off doing his meetings. He was going to one, two, three meetings a day. God forbid he was going to get ahead of me when I was on the Oprah show. So I started going to lots of meetings as well. And ever so slowly, ever so slowly, things began to change in me. I don't know what he was doing. Early on, you all told me it was not my business. I remember going to a meeting one Friday night, and um, uh, the person said, does anybody have a topic And I said, I sure as heck do. And for about eight minutes, you know, he's always gone to those meetings. He's never home. He's always driving people to meetings. He's always on the phone talking. It's a sponsor. Eventually I inhaled. (laughs) And the chairperson of the meeting, she said, "Um, is there any possibility that you would have just a little bit of gratitude that he's sober today? Shut me up shut me up. It really did. Because the family disease of alcoholism is an ego disease for me too. I want to feel better. And I was still thinking that he needed to do, be, do something so that I would feel better. I needed to get a life. I needed to get a life. I hadn't had a life for many years. My life revolved Because I'm an obsessive person, it revolved around him, and it revolved around you. It didn't revolve around me at all. I had stopped stopped going to the dentist, stopped going to doctors. I remember one time he went out to a, a bar to drink, and I knew all of his haunts, because sometimes I'd go drive around the bar just to make sure where he was. And on a cold February night... He was at, I knew he was at a certain bar drinking, and I'd gone through my usual drama, and I was working up a good head of rage and obsession. And long about 1 o'clock in the morning, I'd had enough. I topped off. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to go to the bar. I'm going to go to the bar. So I got up out of bed, and here's where I don't take care of myself. I have my red velour robe, and a lot of the velour is brushed off and gone, The belt is long since gone. I'm tying it with a piece of jute. I get on my tie-dyed blue flip-flops. My hair's down to my waist, and I have bed hair, so it's out to here. 
and I put on my gradient glasses so that no one will recognize me, and I drive to the bar. And then I get out of the car, and I go in. And it had those doors that kind of swing open, and I walked into that bar, and I stopped. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a new sheriff in town. Everybody turned around and looked at me, except one guy. You know who it was. Sitting up at the bar, nursing a beer and smoking a cigarette. And I marched right up to him with all eyes on me. And I walked up to him and I said, If you do not leave now, there will be a scene. as if there hadn't been one already. And he said, okay. And he marched behind me and came home where, of course, we had an argument started by yours truly. So I didn't take care of myself. So I get to the program and you all say, focus on yourself. How do I do that? How do do I focus on myself when I have years of focusing on others? What does that look like? How do I truly practice the live of, le- of live and let live? I wasn't so worried much about letting him live. I needed to learn how to live for me first. So I went to movies by myself. I'd never done that. I, I went out to dinner by myself. I'd never done that. I did lots of things by myself just because I needed to know what made Pauline tick. And then I began hanging with the Al-Anon folks. We went for coffee. We went for tea. I couldn't afford to buy coffee or tea. I sat and had water. But I went because it was in that fellowship, it was in the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting, that I learned a whole heck of a lot about how the program works and how the family disease of alcoholism affects me. For those first two years in the program, I didn't much think that we were going to make it. I wish I could tell you that we both got into the program and we dawdled off to recovery heaven, but that's not the way it was. I was mad and angry still. What helped me with that was working through the steps. You all suggested I get a sponsor, so I did. I didn't know what to do with one once I got one, but I got one. It's all about the show. So I got that sponsor and she saw through that, and so we began to work the steps. And I began to learn how the family disease of alcoholism had become the fertilizer on the characteristics of me that were already there. I was already a control freak when I, when I met him. The alcoholism just made it grow to the extreme. So I began to work on myself. He did what he needed to do. And the, the way I like to think of it is You know how a railroad, you have the the rails? I like to think of it that Mike has his rail of working on himself, and I have my rail, and I work on myself. And what ties us together are the traditions. Those are the ties that help us work together as a couple. And we began, with the help of my sponsor, incorporating the traditions in our relationship. When we moved to Newport, we were in a little house that we rented. And the landlord came to us and said, someone wants to buy your home. Our home has a beautiful view of the skyline of Cincinnati. We are blessed to have such a lovely home. And he, wanted to, he had a buyer for it, but he said, I'd like to let you have first dibs on the house. So, you know, my head goes, how do we work this? How do we maneuver this? How are we going to make this work? I want this house. I want, I want, I want. And the other half and I had a discussion based on what's good for our common welfare and how do we incorporate a higher power into this process. And so what we mutually agreed to do was to be honest with the landlord and then let our higher power have it. So we sat down with that landlord and we said, we have no money, we have no credit. One of us works. We'd love to have the house. And the landlord said, Okay, thanks. And two weeks later, a bank called us and says, congratulations, you've got a loan. 
I have never been so thrilled to go in debt my entire life as when we got that. Because that was just a step. For me, it was seeing how we could work together. I didn't have to be the driving force and take all the responsibility anymore. I, could, I began to have confidence in him. I had lost all confidence in him. I didn't let him have an opinion. As soon as he said anything, I knocked it down and used words to belittle and name him. And I began to see what a smart, compassionate, funny, caring person that he was. So, we began to work together on things, and we got the house and went into debt, and, and life was going on, and uh, we both worked the steps, and um, my schedule at work changed. You know what? I'm going to back up, and I'm going to tell you something that happened first. One of the things that I prided myself on prior to getting into the program was not feeling a thing. You may have told me your mother died. You may have told me you won the lottery. You got the same even-keeled response all the time. Didn't make a difference to me at all. I tried to live in a, in a little box that was primarily filled with anger and rage and an occasional smile. I didn't let joy into my life. You know why? If you're a person like me prior to the program of recovery, you know there's going to be another shoe that's going to drop. And I had to spend my time worrying about the shoes, figuring out how I was going to feel when the shoe dropped and how I was going to feel when he said something to me. And to protect myself, I spent a lot of time figuring out how I was going to feel. And so I didn't feel anything. And I thought that was an okay way to live. Until about four years into the program, and all of a sudden I became very very sad and I didn't know why and I talked to my sponsor and what we determined was that when my father died prior to getting into the program what I had done was what Pauline always does you show up at this time you come here bring the flowers get the food and I project managed my dad's funeral not allowing myself to feel at all And when I miscarried a baby because we tried to have children, the shame of the family disease of alcoholism said, don't tell a soul. Don't anybody let you know how you feel. You do not want self-pity. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps, Pauline. Big girls, don't cry. And that's just the way I talk to myself. And four years into the program, I was a hot mess. Didn't know how to deal with that. And what my sponsor guided me through was I thought feelings were real. And I based my life reacting to all of those feelings. I'd get a feeling and off I'd go. I'm not just your average reactor to feelings. I'm a nuclear reactor (laughs) to feelings because I want to be comfortable. And those feelings scare me. The extreme of joy scared me just as much as the extreme of rage. I didn't know if I would allow myself to cry, to truly feel the grief over my dad and that baby and not having children, to truly feel that would I be okay on the other side? And to allow myself to experience joy, to know that that's part of the emotional landscape and that my higher power wants me to have all of that, would I be able to do that? And so I began to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable because I was uncomfortable with those feelings. Any of them made me uncomfortable. And I learned to just ride the wave. Just ride the wave of the feeling. This too shall pass. And there'll be another feeling that comes along behind it. And that was a remarkable boost to me. Because I began to see that I could live fully, not just being a human doing, which is what I'd prided myself on. 
I began to be a human being. And that was a remarkable tool for me to have. So uh, fast forward a a few years after that, and my work arranges for me not to, um, to have a really goofy schedule. And I didn't go to meetings for a couple of weeks. And I got real twitchy. I didn't quite know what was wrong, but God forbid that I go to a, a meeting. Oh, no, you need to sleep, get ready for work, blah, 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 blah. And so the other half and I end up at a big box bookstore. And I'm in the feng shui section, <laughs> learning how to make my home peaceful, and quiet, and meditative, and calming. I'm too cheap to buy the book, but I'm paging through... And I notice a lady over there looking through the carton of calendars, and the carton of calendars falls on the floor, and she leaves the scene of the crime. I dog-ear that book. I walk right over behind her, raise myself up to six one and a quarter. You've got to use the tools you're given. And I look down at her, and I said, Ma'am, you knocked over a box of calendars back there? If you'll come with me, I'll be happy to help you pick them up. So she trots right behind me. We get over to the scene of the crime. I stoop down and I start putting the calendars in the carton, but she's not helping me. She needs another layer of guilt. I've got one. I said, ma'am, if each of us would clean up our messes that we make and take responsibility for them, What a better world it would be. Please help me clean up your mess. So she stoops down. She helps clean up the calendars. She leaves. I go right back to the feng shui section, open that book right where I was, and then a thought pops into my head. Pauline, who died and made you the queen of the big box bookstore? Who said that you have to determine who cleans up what messes. Huh. Program, you all appeared on my shoulder and you said, maybe you could make amends to her. So I go racing through the store looking for the woman, (laughs) trying to find her. And when I I see Mike, Mike's like, what are you doing? And I'm I'm trying to make amends. I'm trying to make amends. (laughs) And then finally I said to him, I can't find her. We're going to go to Walmart. He said, why are we going to Walmart? I said, I'm going to be a greeter. He said, why are you going to Walmart to be a greeter? And I said, because I need to make amends. I need to make amends. And then we began to laugh because I'm just a goofy person. I'm just a goofy person. So today we have a lot of laughter in our home, and I'm grateful for that because, you know, the family disease of alcoholism took away my ability to laugh at things, unless it was sarcastic. So we laugh a lot today. We, oh my gosh, we laugh. We laugh so much. Even this morning over breakfast, he said, um, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to take an extra. I said, oh, breakfast was so good. He said, yeah, it was. I'm going to take a nap from 9.45 to 10.45. <laughs> Wake up, Mike. So um, um, several years after that, I learned some things about me that I didn't think I had in me. Remember I told you I wasn't able to have children, and I didn't think that I had a bone in me that could be nurturing and caring and loving. And both of our mothers took sick at the same time, his mom with Alzheimer's and mine with Parkinson's. They both passed away in the same year. And when his mother and my mom were both in their nursing care facilities, one of the things that I got to do was use the tools of the program to help me to be present with my mom and with his mom. I learned to keep my head with my feet. And that meant combing my mom's hair and his mom's hair, putting lotion on them, relaxing into acceptance of where they were, and not trying to make them do or be and fit into my plan, but accept a higher power's plan as a gift. For me, it was a gift to be able to be with my mom and his mom as they transitioned. And when his mom passed away, I was there with her. She passed away on my watch. And guess who my mom passed away with? Mike. 
He was reading the big book when she passed away on Thanksgiving. And you know, my higher power works in wonderful, marvelous ways. People appear in my life, and I bet they do yours when you least expect. When my mother passed away, I had... um, Right before she passed away, it was Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving Eve, we had all rushed over there because they said this was it. And my mom rallied a little bit, and everybody went home. I took the night shift and spent time with mom, just stroking her, rubbing her. And uh, I went home that morning, and um, Mike was running around. It was Thanksgiving Day. We had things to do. Family was still going to get together. And the phone rings, and I pick up the phone, and it's somebody from AA from Atlanta asking me to be of service that very weekend. And I paused and I said, gosh, I, I really wish I could. I said, I hate to say no to AA or Al-Anon, but my mom's in hospice care, and they think she's going to pass away pretty soon. And the guy on the other end of the line that I've never met, I don't even remember his name, He paused and he said, well, guess what? My mother-in-law is in hospice care too. Want to talk? My higher power delivered on time an angel to give me a place to just say, I'm scared. Because that little girl in me appeared. And she didn't, once again, didn't know how to handle something. And once again, a higher power appeared right at the right time to let me know that things were going to be okay. A few years ago, the other half had a heart attack. He called me at work. I pick up the phone and he says, Honey, um, I think I'm having a heart attack. I'm driving to the hospital. (laughs) I thought that was rather unusual. So... um, I race to the hospital, and I'm sitting there, you know, I'm, I'm all befuddled. Because, you know, in, in the crisis of that, you don't really know what was going on, and they had to bring him back three times and such. And so, you know, I felt like it was Chicago fire and PD and law and order all wrapped up into one. And I was sitting in the waiting room, and a nurse had come out, and she gave me the, you know, the clinical thing, it's this, this, or this, and, you know, you just sit tight, and we'll be back with you, and... She skedaddles off, and I'm sitting here, and I'm going, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And a woman comes out, and she sits right by me. And she taps me on the thigh, and she says, "Ah, I remember you. You go to those meetings, don't you? And I remember thinking, not now. (laughs) This is a legitimate time for me to be full of fear and be scared. You are not taking this from me. This is legit. Hello. And the lady comes in for round two. You know, those meetings on Friday night, I sat there and cried all the time. Duh. Hello. Fear. Legit. Go away, woman. I'm even trying to give her the, I'm not really interested in talking with you look. She comes in for round three. Friday night, remember, I always sat with so-and-so that went to Florida and I cried all the time and you always handed me tissues. (sighs) Higher power, I get it. You've got this. What you want me to do is be of service to you. I can either choose to live in worry, doubt, and fear or I can make a choice to be of service to my higher power. And it was only at that point that I turned to her and I said, You know what? I do remember you. How the heck are you doing? My higher power shows up all the time. And I am so grateful that the second step enabled me to find a higher power far bigger than the religious God that I grew up with. A higher power that fills me with joy, holds me in their arms when I'm sad, and and provides information and people when I need care and concern. All the time, my job is to look for it and to catch it because sometimes it's quick. Sometimes it's in the smile that I get when I walk in a room. Sometimes it's the extra long hug. Oftentimes, it's the wink the other half gives me across a crowded room that just says to me, 
I love you. It's those simple things that I had forgotten to find a higher power in. Um, Service work has been an important part of my recovery, and I feel that it's important for me to chat about for just a minute because to me, service work is what enables me to stay married to him. (laughs) Because in service work... I learned how to apply the traditions in the group, in the larger group at the district and area level. I've been very involved throughout my time in in the program. I'm currently an Alateen sponsor, and if you're new to Al-Anon, if you have children who are affected by the family disease of alcoholism, look up Alateen or see me after the meeting, and I'd be happy to share with you. Because I sit in rooms with kids, 13 on up, and I hear how this disease affects them. But service work has taught me the traditions. It's taught me to let him go. It's taught me to bring a higher power into a relationship. It's taught me to listen to his opinions. It's taught me that together we are much stronger than me relying on me. And I wouldn't have known that had I not gone and attended and been a part of the program of Al-Anon. I like to stay right in the middle of the program. As my husband says, Don't treat recovery like a firehouse. You know, just pull the alarm and get a dose of recovery and then go out and do the same old thing. I'm a slow learner, and I need constant reinforcement of how to use this program and how to work it. And I think this last story will be evidence of how sick I still am and how much I still need you. We recently were in a cave on a tour And when we got there, the lady, you know, there was a group of about 30 of us, and the lady said, we're going on a tour of a cave that is billions and billions of years old. Do not touch the stalagmites, and do not touch the stalactites. She repeated that sentence again for emphasis. So I know what the rule is. Don't touch the growy downy thingies and the growy uppy thingies. (laughs) So, We go on the tour. Mike has his camera, and he's taking some photographs. So we're hanging at the end of the the group so that we don't impact them. And I'm hanging with him, and guess what I notice? There are three people who are also hanging back behind us, and they are touching the stalagmites and the stalactites. Yes, sirree. The obsession immediately kicks in, and here's what goes on in my sick head. Pauline, you need to tell them. They're breaking the rule. (laughs) You all appear, and you say, in a very relaxed tone of voice, let go and let God. I powered right through that crap. (laughs) And I said, I'm talking to you, I'm saying principles before personalities. The principle is what's good for our common welfare. And you appear again and you say, relax into acceptance. You don't own the cave. Let it go. I powered right through that this next time. I'm still talking to you. You all aren't getting it. You all aren't getting it. And in those 10 minutes, I learned nothing on the tour. I saw nothing on the tour. Even though we're still moving along, the guides and I'm still hanging back in the back because you know who I'm obsessed with? (laughs) The three people. Other halves taking pictures. He's even saying, oh, Pauline, look at this pretty thing over here. And I'm thinking, shut up. I am having an obsession here, buddy. (laughs) Finally, after the third time, I make a choice to get out of the way. It's all about my choices. The fork in the road. Do I want to choose happiness and serenity? Or do I want to choose worry, doubt, and fear, keeping my knickers twisted, being upset all the time? I chose happiness. I moved to the front of the tour group because I'm just that sick. And I enjoyed the rest of the tour. Unbeknownst to those three people, I figured out where they parked their car and thought maybe a slit in their tire would be... Good compensation, but you know what my sponsor says? I can think those things. I used to act on them. Today I don't have to do that. I get to make a choice. Every day I get to make a choice. I can either decide that my higher power is everything, 
or my higher power is nothing. The question I have to ask myself frequently is, do my actions support my belief? If I believe my higher power is everything, is my worrying about the stalagmites and the stalactites on my plate or my higher power's plate? Is whether Mike does this or that on my plate or God's plate? Is whether you are in the right line at the grocery store, mine or higher powers? Every day a choice. I live my life in the fork of the road. It is only through what I've learned from you that on good days when I'm spiritually fit, I make a better choice. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share this morning.